Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. Guess what? What? We're going to be at Dev Intersection May 18th through the 21st in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yes, we are. And it's a lineup of a lot of .NET Rocks uh, guests from the past here. Ward Bell's going to be there. Chris Langford's going to be there. Yep. Paul Sheriff. And of course, Scott Guthrie. Brian Noyes. Mm-hmm. All of our friends, folks we know. And uh, it's like two weeks after Build. Yeah, that's a great time to have a conference. Absolutely. All the build keynotes are coming. So yep. we're going to be able to see all the latest bits, everything that just came out of build a couple of weeks later, uh, hopefully with some more detail in it. So it's going to be really interesting to see what we actually get at the Scottsdale Princess. Mark Miller's going to be there. Yes, he is <laughs> doing a little biology of UI, which I think is very cool. I've been over at his house watching him develop this course. And man, is it amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I believe I'll be doing the Xamarin Forms workshop, will I not? You will indeed. And of course, we close the show every time with the 64-bit question. 64-bit question, the game show you've never seen before, and you'll wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why not. So if you'd like to join us, come out, out to Scottsdale, uh, go to devintersection.com and register right away. And if you register for a workshop as well, you get your choice of an Xbox One or a tablet. There's a bunch of different gadgets you get. Do a conference attendance and a workshop. Yeah. All right. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1138, with guest Jeff Casimer. Recorded Thursday, April 16th, 2015. Hey man, what's up? Ah, good, man. I'm just plunking along here. You know, spring is in the air, which means the rain is in the sky. Yep, that's right. Things are uh, pleasantly warming up here on the East Coast. Finally, That's... would you believe the buds still are not out? Wow. And we're recording this April 27th. Yep. Trees still have not flowered. Just getting to spring now. We're just thinking about spring. There you go. We're fixing to have spring, <laughs> <laughs> as they say in Texas. All right, let's just roll the uh, funky music because I have an apology as well as a better know framework today. Oh. So go ahead. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, so first of all, apologies for uh, talking about the Agent Watch in show 1126, the three Ps with Mike Benkovich. Uh, my Better Know framework, I, I went and I looked and I found a Kickstarter of what looked like a really cool watch, and I didn't read enough of the comments because this Agent Watch is uh, basically a dead project. The guy collected money from everybody and then screwed him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a bunch of unhappy commenters on that show. And I just had to make right. I, I'm removing the link from the page. And no, do not get the agent watch. It's not available. So, and, and I don't think you even can, but um, he's. it's been a couple of years. It's dead. The guy kind of has gone underground. And it's always a question. Of, and this is what I've been wondering about with these Kickstarters and Indiegogos and all these sorts of things. Intentional or just naive? Well, who says never attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence? Yes. And I tend to thank incompetence because, you know, you have to have a heck of a lot of competence to pull off a watch like that. Yeah. Well, and and if you could build it, you would have already built it. Maybe. So, you know, it's sort of the thing of that's part of the assessment when it comes to these. I've I've always worried that one day you're gonna we're gonna have a Kickstarter with a perfect video. Millions yeah. of dollars are going to come flowing in, and then they're just going to disappear. Well, I have a solution for that, at least as far as our reputation is concerned. I vow to uh, highlight no more Kickstarter campaigns on Better No Framework. So there you wow. go. Wow. 
Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if there was a product that already exists that is a uh, product of a Kickstarter, that's one thing. But, you know, I, I why? Why bother? You right. know, you guys can Google that stuff yourself. I would watch Indiegogo and Kickstarter regularly if I were you. But there's so many more good things to talk about. We don't need to be, uh, you know, uh, getting people excited about something that may or may not happen. Of course. Yeah. So that brings me to today's Better Know Framework, which is a real thing. Speaking of good things. Speaking of good things, this is Intel's PC on a stick, a compute stick. Go to tinyurl.com slash PC stick. Uh, Richard, we talked about this in the last Geek Out, which was great. Right, in the Moore's Law Geek Out, because it's such an interesting manifestation of Moore's Law. Look how small this stuff is getting. That's right. So for 150 bucks, you can get this PC on a stick. And this PC World article here that I'm scrolling through right now says, Intel Compute Stick Review. It could make your TV smart, but it's short on use cases. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's... Between $35 and $150 from a Chromecast to a PC. Right. I mean, the benefit is, of course, you can program it in C Sharp and you can do all your Windowsy things on it. But, uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of storage and performance is, you know, it's $150 worth of performance. It's, yeah. Let's just make, be clear here. It's a PC on a stick, but really it's a stick first. Yep. But check it out anyway, because it's very interesting. I've never seen a PC at $150 before, so uh, I'm probably going to get one just because. Yeah. Well, talk about ubiquitous computing, right? I mean, they, the pictures in that article, it's half the size of a Raspberry Pi 2. Yeah. Like, that's it's small. That's amazing. It is interesting. And you can go to Amazon and Newegg and other places and get $100, $150 stick-sized PCs right now. All right, dude. Very cool. There you go. Uh, know it, learn it, love it. And again, that's tinyurl.com slash PC stick. And not a Kickstarter. Not a Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what the heck did I step in? Yep. Careful. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1094, the one we did with Uncle Bob. We talked a little bit about software craftsmanship. Yes. And you know, one of the big pieces in that conversation that I, I quite enjoyed was... Uh, this whole idea of just the rate of new developers coming in all of the time. I thought it was very salient to the conversation we're having today. And there's been a ton, I mean, a ton of comments on that show. So clearly oh, yeah. hitting a button with the listeners here. And Nathan Wolk's comment, I really appreciated. He said, the first part of this whole conversation has been on my mind a lot lately. In my nearly seven years of a programming career, which makes him not a novice, really. I mean, that's a while. Not once. Have I had anybody take a serious, hard look at my code and give me constructive criticism, help me understand design patterns, or learn best practices, and so on? From the moment I left college and took my first job, I was on my own to increase my knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. Even at my first job. When we had code reviews, most of the time the reviews were limited to pointing out simple mistakes and missing comments and giving me crap about typing te instead of the. <laughs> te looks funny, though. Tay is funny. It almost looks like you meant it. (laughs) It has become apparent to me in this industry that our mentors are Stack Overflow, Pluralsight, and other video online tutorial sites, and the blogs of experts in the field and podcasts. Yeah. I seriously doubt that in my career I will ever be able to have anyone that I feel is a role model to provide solid constructive criticism and help me grow beyond my own ability to self-learn. Mm-hmm. 
Frankly, the only way I've learned anything beyond what is taught in school is through those places I mentioned above and by either reviewing my coworkers' code outside of the code reviews and from exploring open source control repos like GitHub, going and looking at even more code. One yep. day, though, it would be a magical event if someone, anyone, would ever just take a look at the code I produce. I don't care if they rip it apart and tell me I'm the worst coder they've ever seen in years, if in the end they help me rebuild into an even better coder. Yeah. Some people can learn great just by reading a book, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> I need practical applications and someone to guide me through the more advanced concepts. It's too bad. There's just not enough mentors out there. It is too bad. And it, it's too bad that, you know, not everybody can just pick up the phone or send an email and say, hey, what do you think about that? Yeah, th those those kinds of relationships are are invaluable. But, uh, you know, that the videos do a... Do a good job. It, Jeff was talking about before we started here, we did a video edit for him for a new relic uh, a long time ago. And I, I just remember all the all those videos we used to do in, in DNR TV and the plural site videos. There's just so much stuff out there that yeah. you can learn just by sitting down and absorbing it. But so much of it is product oriented. This is how you do X. The much more subtle concept of is this well-crafted code? Yeah. You know, is this a, a best way to approach this? Have I applied this design pattern well? Was this the right pattern to apply in the first place? Yeah. That, that's really, A, that's really hard to teach, period. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you could get it from a video or a book or anything else. It's, it's a very much a mentoring relationship. And, and then, of course, it was on Uncle Bob's show because he was talking about, hey, as experienced devs, we're totally outnumbered. There's so many more new novice developers coming in. Right. And even if we dedicated all our time to that and did no work, we couldn't cover it all. I think just absorbing a lot is what's necessary because you need to get a lot of different viewpoints from a lot of different people. In other words, having an ongoing conversation, listening to an ongoing conversation, being yes. in on an ongoing conversation. That's where you sort of, you, you develop your sense of smell. Yeah. Yeah. And and get some experience and be I mean, I really don't see any way to avoid us nope. just making mistakes too along the way, right? But that's right. not a bad thing. Most of the time when I'm on stage talking about software development, I'm really saying, hey, here's how I screwed this up. I would save you that pain. That's right. <laughs> Boy, if only our kids learned that way. Yep, pretty much. It is a way. It's just getting, you know, the problem is software is becoming more and more important organizations. And you just, we have the luxury of being in early enough where it wasn't that big a deal to screw up. But I think the issues are getting larger and larger and we're going to have to do better. Indeed. Nathan, uh, thank you so much for your comment. And you've obviously stimulated some conversation and certainly more to come. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks .com or on any of our mobile apps as we've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest. Jeff Casimer has been teaching programming for the past 12 years in K-12 through and to adults. In 2012, his Hungry Academy program was one of the first efforts to teach development in just a few months. Later, he started the Turing School of Software and Design in Denver, where he's now executive director. Welcome, Jeff. How's it going? It's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Boy, it's been a while since we talked last. What have you been up to? All right. I need to know you guys' history. I've clearly missed on something here. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a few years ago. 2012? Yeah. There's a lot of 12s in your bio. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> 12 years, K to 12, 2012. Yeah, it was the 2012. Theme. Right. There's a 12 theme here. Um, we edited a video for you, right? A mm-hmm. new Relic video. Yeah. So 2009, I started a company called Jumpstart Lab that did technical training, um, primarily around like open source programming languages. And around 2012, we were experimenting with some uh, screencasts and video recording kind of things. And that's where we hooked up with Carl to uh, turn our shitty, uh, screencast into a highly edited, beautiful work of art. He does do that. No two ways about it. Yep. Speaking of editing, I'm probably not supposed to say shitty. Well, now you said it twice. So. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep you busy. <laughs> that's why we have beepers. There you go. That's really no problem. Yeah, not a big deal. All right, I'm focused now. If you, you know, if you you're that emotional, you need to express yourself with profanity. Go right ahead. <laughs> do what you need to do. It's really okay. We're here to help. We will protect those ears. So we're talking about shepherding, shepherding novice developers. What did you think of the the uh, the comment that was left on our website there? Yeah, um, I thought it was tragic. You know, honestly, I think one of the challenges that we have as an industry is how little professional development happens for developers, right? That there's this idea of you'll you'll learn by doing the job, just keep working on projects and you'll learn everything you need to know. Uh, but really, the research on learning doesn't prove that to be correct at all. Uh, if you make uh, like sports analogies, which I tend to shy away from, but, uh, you know, it reminds me of like Allen Iverson. Uh, who wanted to only play in basketball games and not go to basketball practice. And like we, we can see from the outside that that's kind of absurd, but then our whole industry is really built around that premise of I'll just do my work and I'm sure I'll keep learning things. Mm. Uh, I think that's a big reason why software developers leave jobs so frequently uh, yeah. because you get into a thing that's new and exciting. You hack on it for a couple years. It's no longer new and exciting. You're still doing the same stuff. You don't feel like you're progressing at the same rate. And now you have 10 friends with 10 different companies who are all doing the fancy new thing. So you might as well hop over there and try it out. And the cost of losing people is so tremendously high to an engineering organization, right? That I think it's a real shame that we don't put more resources into making sure people are not just challenged in terms of how many you know hours of work they're doing, but that we're constantly pushing them to learn and try new things. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the book, um, Talent is Overrated. Mm where there's this whole discussion on this idea that practice is not the work. Again, with the athletic thing, it's like you mostly practice for the few times you need to perform. And as a software developer, I virtually never practice. I'm always building code for use, for somebody's stuff. And that's not really practice. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know in the comments um, came up like Exorcism.io is a site that one of our staff members um, started up and things like that I think are, are starting to build the idea of like let's just practice and let's talk about our outcomes and compare notes and share ideas, uh, but it still seems very uh, primordial. I think one of the ways you can practice, and I do this a lot, is I find a, um, well, let's just say a tool or I have an idea or, you know, I want to practice some uh, or I want to learn something I'll just start writing these little little apps that just test and exercise the thing that I want to that I want to learn or I want to do but along the way you know all of your software development skills come into play so that's a form of practice but it's sort of stealthy you know it's like it's like hiding your vitamins in your in your hamburger you know it's a lot of fun 
One of our favorite uh, little techniques at Turing is we do these weekly code retreats. Um, so it's actually coming up in about an hour now where all the students will get together regardless of how far along they are in the program and work together for two 40-minute sprints on kind of small challenge that each has uh, a certain focus. You know, can you uh, not use this technique? Can you not use if statements? Or mm. can you pair with uh, alternating every line of code between the two of you and so on and so forth just to like stretch the boundaries of what's comfortable in your normal day-to-day work. Yeah, it's a great idea. Wow. And you, I'm sure you've been seeing results with that. Yeah, the results, one of the funny results is that they hate it, um, <laughs> which is... <laughs> but that's a basic measure of real practice, it inherently sure unpleasant. Yeah. You know who really practices hard? My friend Carl Franklin. Yeah. I watched him on a road trip play, get, practice guitar every day, and he wasn't playing songs. He was working riffs and playing scales and stuff that's unpleasant. Oh, no, and it's he, completely Then he sort of reward himself at the end <laughs> with a song. Yep. It's always pleasant. I mean, after a while, it's really, you get in the zone and you get that flow state like we were talking about, and it's pleasant. It's very pleasant. So, you know, I, I can imagine not being in a state of flow when you're working with other people, but anytime you're sort of working on anything by yourself, it's extremely pleasurable to me. Yeah, what I think can be powerful about practice, you know, is while when you're practicing your scales, yeah, you're not getting the enjoyment of playing a song, but you're also practicing all the songs, right? Like the skill that you are building up there sharpens your ability to pick up all future songs. Yeah, it's like memorizing the dictionary so you can have a better vocabulary. All All the books are in there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, all there. The right just not sorted particularly well, or maybe they're sorted too well. <laughs> they're d- redistributed. <laughs> but I really appreciate this idea that, like, you are really practicing. If you're taking a given task, right? You know, compute x number of primes, but don't use the multiply operator. Yeah. Yep. Right. The, that sort of thing. Take away the obvious path. This idea of writing the same result several different ways that to me is practice partly because it's so flippin unpleasant yeah but then also when you get done can be incredibly satisfying right like when you when you had some technique you weren't sure if you could actually pull off um or some meta programming or something that's like kind of outside your normal uh box of or your normal toolkit then all of a sudden it feels pretty good my general uh formula is puzzle plus scotch equals happiness (laughs) (laughs) and if he's not happy after a few more scotches you don't care care. (laughs) no i i actually to all kidding aside i rarely imbibe when i'm developing that i save that for after yeah we tend to have a rule of um at least noon friday that's kind of like the cutoff friday (laughs) after there you go it's uh no holding back yeah so you drank all week long and you stopped Friday afternoon. Is what you're That's right. There you go. <laughs> okay. I thought so. Um, what about stuff like code catas? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same principle. You know, um, Dave Thomas, who's on our board, uh, has been a proponent of those. And uh, our f- late friend, Jim Wyrick, uh, was always a big fan of code katas. Um, I like that. I think code katas are effective um, solo work and code retreat tends to be more focused on pairing right so i think they kind of go hand in hand so in the case of our of our our frustrated listener like here is a way to practice that doesn't rely on you having someone to pair with 
Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about both code katas and code retreats is that it's not about solving the problem, right? Like if your challenge, as you were saying before, you know, find the, all the prime numbers under 10,000, uh, any, any programmer, uh, of, of reasonable <laughs> skill can do that. Uh, getting the result is not the interesting part. It's the method that allows you to arrive at that result, right? So that means you can solve the same problem over and over. You could have five code katas and solve one on Monday, one on Tuesday through the rest of the week and repeat week after week with a different area of focus each time through and and get all the same benefit because the point is not, can I solve this problem or not? It's can I exercise this technique correctly? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, being an old guy, we've changed languages so many times. And I remember like getting into Visual Basic coming from Clipper and looking at it and going, okay, I need to build a CRUD app. I need to make a record, find a record, modify a record, delete a record. Like this was a kata, the pretty standard exercise. How do I do it with this set of tools? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just reading um, a commentary on which language you should learn. Uh, and all of those, they're all wrong, right? The answer is like, it, it doesn't matter in my opinion. Right. Uh, and, and the sentence in this commentary was some schools even claim it doesn't matter what language you learn, but it will likely matter to your potential employers and to you. You know, it's like, man, you're short sighted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's more to it than that. Without a doubt. Yeah. And, and whether you're choosing to work in, you know, C sharp or PHP, like you can still exercise. 98% of the same uh, skills and challenges along the way. So there are, there's, there are plenty of schools and, you know, online resources and things like that where people can pay a lot of money for a short period of time to, to learn things and to be shepherded. But, and then we talked about this with uncle Bob, do you think that there is room in this economy for, uh, for some sort of more one-on-one personal attention um, and I don't mean consulting in the, in the strict sense of the word, because anybody can pay a consultant and have that one-on-one, but it just in terms of novices, how yeah. do you solve the incentive problem of, you know, novices are the ones that don't have the money to pay for a Jeff Casimir or, or, you know, an uncle Bob to come and sit down with them and, and, and look over their shoulder. Sure. Uh, with our program, we put a pretty heavy emphasis on peer mentoring and I think it is surprisingly effective. Uh, I think people that have not done peer mentoring with another developer, uh, would presume, you know, I'm only, uh, going to pick up whatever this person knows that I don't know, but there's so much more to that when you start challenging assumptions, right? And, um, back when we started hungry Academy, to be honest, I was terrified. Uh, when I laid out the curriculum, I had subjects that I was going to teach that I had never done myself. I didn't even know how they worked. And through that teaching, I learned so much. Like I'm so much better at developer, uh, or, or my skills have changed so much in the past two years versus the nine years before that, uh, because of the role of mentoring other people. Uh, and answering all their questions. And when you say like, oh yeah, this thing, you know, it works like this. And then when somebody challenges you a little bit and says like, I'm, are you sure that doesn't seem right? And you go, oh yeah, wow, you're, you're right. Like this, this thing that I took as assumption, kind of axiomatic understanding, it, it turns out that that was wrong the whole time. And right. so I don't think you need Uncle Bob 
to mentor you unless you've really like tapped out all the peers that you can possibly access. Um, I think someone who's at a similar skill level to you can be very valuable for mentoring. Um, I have this theory around building technical communities. So I was uh, giving a talk a couple of weeks ago uh, in Iowa City and they have a small startup tech community that they're trying to build. And, and I was talking about technical mentorship because everyone feels constrained by the talent, right? We don't have enough developers. We don't have enough experience in developers. And what we've observed is that it takes about 300 hours for a person who knows nothing about programming to know enough that they can actually mentor someone else who's learning. And I, I pitched to them this idea of kind of a, a compound interest where if you took one person and they mentored three developers each one hour a week, and then each of those after three, uh, after about, I think it was 12 weeks of work that they would have put in 300 hours of practice between the mentoring time and like practice time on their own and could then start mentoring the next level down. And you could very quickly grow a mentoring network of a hundred people in under six months. Huh? Well, the thing that, the thing that I have to keep coming back to is these incentives. Like, you know, peer programming is great for those who are inexperienced, but what about for those who are? You know, it seems like the incentive to spend time with novices goes down the more experienced you get. And so you're always, you know, the optimum thing would to be have somebody who's just a little bit more experienced than you are mentoring you. But is, is that enough? In other words, isn't it the people who have all the, you know, the, the, the scars, the battle scars, the, the ones that you really need to get that mentorship from? I, I think there's a lot of complexity to developers and their, how they kind of self-identify their skills. And from our days of corporate training, uh, going into big companies and working with teams for a week or two, I was honestly horrified with the state of most professional developers skills. Um, and, hmm. and maybe that was part of why we were there to help them level up. Um, but just the dedication that a lot of people brought to their craft or lack of dedication mm -hmm. was disheartening and scary. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who have been programming for a while and are deep down scared that they don't know what they're doing. And if they start working with people who are newer than them, who only, you know, you have eight years and you start working with somebody with two years experience or somebody with six months experience, you might get exposed that they have questions that you don't know how to answer and that that's terrifying at a deep level, right? Where I like self-identify as the software developer and that's who I am. And if I were to find out that I don't know as much as I thought I know, or if other people found out that after eight years, I don't know, I'm not as good as they think an eight-year experienced developer should be, that that would really shake your identity. So mentoring is, uh, being a mentor, I think, is is scary. And I think, I think part of the scary part is being challenged. Just, you know, it's, it's only been the past few months, I think this has really been hitting me hard. We've done a few shows where we've talked to newer developers, we've talked to folks who are suddenly looking at experience and saying, is just just, scar tissue is this cruft that's holding us back from exploring some new ideas 
when you see someone who didn't have that baggage, and now I'm looking at all this experience as baggage, and they just grab the new tools and they ran with the new mm-hmm. ideas and just were naive enough to not worry about it. Mm-hmm. We'll figure that stuff out as we go. Where, you know, the fact that I had to make sure I could read, write, modify, delete a record, and so forth, rather than just dive in, you know, I, I really battle with how much advantage have we got with experience? Maybe the less experienced people are peers, real peers of only certain levels of experience that can bounce back and forth on ideas are going to get easily as much value as this sort of vaunted elder statesman type developer that's going to bring you under the wing and tell you how all the new tools are evil and they stick with these old <laughs> techniques that I learned 20 years ago and you'll be just fine. I think you're describing a personality disorder. It may be. <laughs> I do think there's kind of a a sweet spot, you know, when you first start programming, everything's impossible. Every misplaced parentheses is the end of your world. Right. And then I think there's an area from about maybe six months to a year of experience to about four or five years of experience where everything is possible, right? right? And every tool you see, every conference video you watch, everything's amazing, we're going to create all the things. Right. And then I, I think a lot of people do transition into this third stage that's sad where it's like everything's impossible, <laughs> right? That that new thing, it won't work when you have 10 billion users. It won't work when you have to shard your database across six different servers. And and you start seeing the holes in things instead of the possibility in things. And that's that's where I think like real stagnation happens for developers. But I mean, you're talking about two extremes, right? I'm uh, hopefully, hopefully what you learn after all of this is just to th- think your way through things and not just sort of have any kind of pre- you know, preconceptions whatsoever. And, you know, it's, it's not as emotionally exciting. I'll tell you that than than thinking everything is wonderful or everything sucks because, you know, strong emotions are, are, are how we associate memories and stuff. So it's not as emotionally exciting, but that's reality. I'm sorry. Wasn't there somebody who said once in this show that absolutism was the way of the Sith? That's right. <laughs> and he said it in such a tone that he actually scared a bunch of listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Including my wife. Including <laughs> your wife? <laughs> she's listening to She says, is that supposed to be in there? That was really weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that is that is the mantra here. You know, there is no absolute. Yeah. And I think it really pushes us, compels us to like keep moving in the same way that we're talking about practice not being the same as as building things for production i think keeping our practice too narrow or perhaps even trying to push too deep it could be a mistake you know i I don't love when somebody says to me you know oh i've tried these like six different javascript frameworks like well it's unlikely that you really have a reasonable understanding of any of the six Mm. but more frequently Uh, Or let me say this morning I was reading a Quora question that was how many programming languages does the typical programmer actually know? And I think the answer is one. Um, I I think there are a large number who have touched many programming languages who have worked with six languages over time. Mm -hmm. But how many do they know in in the sense that they can deploy it right now to build something? I think it's usually one or two. Uh, And there's so much lost potential there, right? Like there's so many amazing things happening. And even if you, even if you're a C sharp person and uh, you consider like 
JavaScript the devil, you know, uh, going and working in JavaScript taught me a tremendous amount about my primary language. Yeah. Like I, it was great to see a different take on some of the same ideas and help me understand like what was really happening under the hood. I learned a lot about what not to do in JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that's many of the options. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, I agree. I agree with you. I, I, uh, I went down a really strong JavaScript rabbit hole for a while and, uh, you know, I'm sort of still there, but, um, in learning that I, I learned a lot about functional programming, um, mm -hmm. just by something that I wouldn't have otherwise done. Yeah. For me with, um, teaching JavaScript, I actually started teaching JavaScript before I had written any JavaScript of consequence. Mm. And I felt like I kept, I would teach it and then I wouldn't use it for a while and I would forget it and then I have to learn it again. Yeah. And what I finally did was um, take, I mentioned exorcism earlier. I, I took exorcism and decided for a hundred days in a row, I was going to make one commit of JavaScript to my exorcism solutions and marched through and probably completed about 30 of the challenges along the way and learned a, a ton about the language. And now I feel like actually have this foundation that, that will persist, not kind of like evaporate quickly. Absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is? What time is it? Time for my head to spin around and pea soup to start coming out my mouth. Oh, no. It's <laughs> exorcism time. Uh, play a little Mike Holfield <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Actually, that got a laugh out of Jeff. That's good. There That's go. all I really wanted, you know. I was wondering where the pea soup was going. <laughs> <laughs> that is an old reference. That's, that's a 1970s movie. Your mother likes kitty litter. What is it? She said your mother eats kitty litter or something. Uh, I think really, it was much more horrible than that. I'm sure it was. <laughs> anyway, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you that Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Kriston Moldovan. Congratulations, Kriston. Golf clap for you. Kriston. Ow. It's the Muppet Show. Yay. All right. Kriston uh, just won a Telerik DevCraft collection. Big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 shopping spree, a technology shopping spree, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We like to ask our guest, Jeff, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? There's so many options, right? I, I kind of long for the days when the answer was a gaming computer. Right? <laughs> buy all the components off Newegg and, and put it all together myself. You could still do that, you know. Yeah, I know, but I'm just, I'm like too old. That time has passed me by. <laughs> uh, I, I think really the answer for me would be a couple hundred bucks in Raspberry Pis and then a lot of money at Home Depot. Oh. Uh, you know, I think the the technology is not really the limiting factor in the things I want to build anymore. Yeah. Um, and so just a little bit of electronic brain and then a lot of conduit and wiring and electrical boxes and lumber and 
I don't know. So just what make, kind make of something amazing, crazy, amazing thing do you have in mind to build? <laughs> I'll tell you the project I'm working on right now. It's really <laughs> so boring, but it's cool for us. Uh, there are electromagnetic door holders like that keep our doors open. And then at six o'clock that they automatically close. So our students will stop leaving the doors propped open overnight. Wow. Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, a project I never got around to that's sort of like that was an automatic door opener for my server closet for when it overheats. Like if they, some, you know, as the air conditioner gets old, it'll seize sometimes and shut off. Mm -hmm. And then you got to turn it back on again. But if it just opened the doors once it got warm, then it wouldn't matter. But uh, that's just not that simple to do. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of bits. They, it's, it's a very, you know, they, they talk about this Internet of Things. What you're describing there is mostly things. There's very little Internet. Yeah, you'd be surprised what you can do with a relay, though, you know? But you got to move the door. Yeah. Right? Like, actually moving the door. Well, yeah, but, you know, at Richard, the way I would solve it is with a, a saw, right? I would cut a hole in my house. <laughs> and then I'd have a little pet door that I could open, you know, a with a little idea. spring or something like that. You're just not thinking, Richard. <laughs> I just want to move the door. <laughs> I feel like things are just not, you know, the, like the really interesting stuff to me is just not expensive anymore. Unless no, it's going to be totally right. a and, Tesla. And, and the really interesting stuff is very analog. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It is not on or off. I'm not talking about open or close. I'm talking about moving the door. <laughs> I want to <laughs> move the door. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Heavy things are hard to deal with when you're a programmer. Pretty much. <laughs> I like light things like bits. I will say I was building a climbing wall for my kids last week, and uh, I think I sprained my wrist. So now my, my career is in some jeopardy here as it hurts to type. So you should stay safe behind your keyboards, people. All right. So how do we get involved? If we're if you're listening to this and you live in a vacuum and work in a vacuum, maybe you've got a few friends, but how do you convince everybody to get together after work and start mentoring some people? And how do you even do that without being creepy? The first thing to do is decide on your commitment. Uh, you know, there are a lot of initiatives around the country and around the world to do kind of one-off exposure workshops. You know, we're going to do a Saturday thing and we're going to help you build a web application or whatever. Mm. And that's great to help people figure out if this is something that they want to pursue, but it doesn't actually help them pursue it. Uh, mentoring is not going to happen in one meeting or three meetings. You need to make a commitment on a recurring basis, right? Even if it's two hours a month, but it's the same two hours, the same first Tuesday of the month, whatever it is, that can be really meaningful. Uh, I think we have already in place a large infrastructure for finding people, right? Pretty much everything's on meetup.com. Mm -hmm. And going to a local meetup, there are, uh, I, I always encourage people to consider meetups like outside their most kind of tightly defined domain, you know? So if you're a .NET person, like, yeah, start with a C-sharp meetup, but maybe you already know everybody there and you already go to that. Um, what about just kind of a general 
tech meetup for your city or a startup entrepreneurs meetup and that kind of thing. Um, just kind of broaden out the scope a little bit. And if you say I'm interested in mentoring somebody and this is the, uh, this is the schedule that I'm able to commit to. I guarantee you, you'll have five to 10 people banging down your door for that opportunity. Uh, I think finding people to mentor is tremendously easy. The downside of it is I think, uh, like many relationships, people are hesitant to have a conversation about the nature of their relationship. And if I am mentoring somebody, I'm going to actually uh, effectively write a contract with them to say like, this is what I'm putting in and this is what you're putting in. And if we both do what we say we're going to do, this is going to be awesome. And if we don't, most likely if you don't put in what you say you're going to put in, like we're going to break up and I'm going to go find somebody who will, right? Because there's no sense in uh, a mentor is not like a personal trainer. That's your guilt trip. If you don't sign, uh, show up to the gym, right? The mentor is supposed to help you along the way, not be the driving force. Right. And so I think that's, that's a waste of time to, if you feel like you're dragging people along or everything involves a lot of excuses or reasons why the mentee like can't or didn't get done what they expected to get done. Um, there are really great people out there that, that want to learn. I think you can go to your local meetup, just say you're available and have a straightforward conversation with them. What's been your experience with local user groups? Varied. Uh, yeah, varied. Be honest here. Yeah. Um, there are some user groups that I really enjoy. Um, there's a Ruby user group in Baltimore. That's my favorite user group on the planet um, because it's highly interactive. For me, I don't, I'm not interested in going to a room and sitting quietly and listening to somebody talk for an hour and a half. Um, that's kind of a waste of time, right? Like we've got this incredibly smart, invested, interesting group of people and then we tell uh, 99% of them to sit silent while one of them talks. Right. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, the, I never really thought of it that way. But now, you know, with so much uh, one-way learning on the internet, what's the difference between going to a lecture, you know, which is essentially what you get, or watching a Pluralsight video? Yeah. And personally, I don't watch videos. I think I... The only conference videos I've ever watched are probably myself to make sure I didn't say anything really stupid. Uh, <laughs> just watching videos is not my thing. And mm -hmm. like sitting and listening to somebody talk for an exceptionally long time uh, is not my thing. Like it, it makes a lot of sense to have a group where somebody maybe sets a tone, you know, that a 15 minute talk, maybe 20 minute talk. Yeah. And then like, let's get dirty. Let's get out some laptops and like do some work and discuss this stuff right. in reality, not just like talk about the hypothetical cases. Right. Yeah. And again, I, I firmly believe in this idea that different people learn different ways. I am, I am a very good reader. I prefer to read. It lets me set the pace of learning. I can internalize stuff quickly. I can read it and then type it, no problem. That works for me. And there's lots of folks, and I think it's one of the reasons we're still doing this podcast, that like to listen. Like That is what is enjoyable to them. Maybe they do something with it from there, but it depends on the person as to how they want to learn and what's effective for them. True that. There's um, some really interesting educational research that says the idea of learning methodologies is a myth. 
that uh, the idea of certain people learning better visually or certain people learning better through spoken word, et cetera, is a myth, but our perception of it makes it become true. Interesting. If that yeah. makes sense. And so when you, when you identify whatever kind of your way is, then when you start to receive information a different way, you subconsciously start to reject it or like pay less attention, which I kind of find pretty fascinating as a teacher. You know, that, that sort of jibes with the, the whole power of belief idea and the placebo effect where, you know, when you think something is going to happen, you can actually make it happen in your brain. You know, your brain will actually make it happen for you or it right. can get in the way. So given that's true, then we should all be going to lectures because as long as we believe in lectures teaching us effectively, it'll work. <laughs> That's well said, Richard. I mean, yeah, you know, unfortunately, the- <laughs> uh, related <laughs> related research also says that lecture is pretty much the worst. Yeah. Way. Ah, so the teaching format does matter. Well, the teaching yeah. format maybe m- may matter, but learning mm-hmm. styles may be different. Yeah, the the research says that um, it's more closely correlated to the material itself that like the nature of the material lends itself towards practice-based or discovery-based learning or lecture-based learning or whatever it is rather than the individuals interesting i do think that the instructor matters that's true ability for someone to keep your attention to draw you in, to get you excited, to activate those learning receptors in your mind. Anyone? Anyone? (laughs) Bueller? Bueller? And by the same token, like, I've seen really cool material delivered in a way that made you want to stick needles in your eyes. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. I think that's true. You know, it's one of what I consider like one of our competitive advantages as a school is that our teachers are uh, experienced teachers. Almost half of us come from like a K-12 world. And there are a lot of developers out there uh, that kind of have a mindset of like, I know how to program, therefore I can teach people how to program. And one-on-one or one-on-two, you know, in a mentoring capacity, that can totally work because it's easy to read their faces, to react on the fly, et cetera. Um, but the transition to lecturing to or instructing 20, 30, 40 people at once, uh, it, it takes a lot of practice. Right. Can we get off on a tangent here? Now, I I apologize to our international listeners, but uh you're uh, obviously a teacher have been a teacher do you think the american north american and by i mean america america usa the us educational system supports our uh shall we say the way that we learn in this business uh no is the simple answer i, I think there is some really great innovation happening in k-12 with educational models when you look at the influence of like play-based instruction montessori instruction expeditionary learning etc i I think there are very smart people who are trying to figure out new ways to teach Um, but at the same time like when i was in the classroom uh, when i was teaching high school for instance i felt that the teachers i taught with and the quality of instruction that they delivered far surpassed the quality of instruction that I received when I went to a very fancy, expensive private high school. That's and funny. I was working at a low-income, low-resource public school. Uh, the challenge is that 
the student peers didn't push them, didn't push each other in the same ways that my peers pushed me in high school. And so the teacher is tremendously important, but is only like the first piece of the puzzle uh, in really amplifying your educational outcomes. And, and I'm sorry, but it is the end of the show. And I feel I can do this because it isn't related to mentoring, but it is related to how we learn. And Richard and I have had this conversation recently about homework. And uh, there's a whole bunch of teachers now that are not giving homework. And I'm talking about middle school. I realized that in high school, uh, there's more homework. And obviously, if anybody's going to university is, but I guess there's a movement against homework. Are you seeing that? Yeah, there, it's it, it's kind of gone both ways, you know, where you have kids that are in first, second grade with hours of homework per night, which I think we all look at and go, you know, that's absurd. That's absurd. Um, yeah. And then it flips the other way, you know, some schools where homework is not really allowed or it's limited to one hour a night or something like that. Um, you know, as you guys were saying before, I, I think there's a tremendous value in being able to go at your own pace. And if you can give an assignment that takes your high achieving students an hour and your struggling students two or three hours, uh, that's probably a, a good assignment, you know? So one of the challenges is like differentiation of how do you hit like multiple learners exactly. at their own level of need. And I've discovered from my own sort of investigation and talking to the teachers in my middle schoolers uh, school is that a the kids don't do homework so they don't prescribe it like they don't do it and most yeah. of them don't do it and b um, custom tailoring lessons and homework to each individual kid is just too much work for them yeah, it's kind of the holy grail of, of education. It's like everyone knows that students would perform better if we could do that. But the scale, particularly where you have generally large classrooms now at most, especially public schools of 28 to 38 students in a classroom. If you're a teacher giving out this assignment that let's say it takes students two hours, it probably takes you at least 10 minutes to grade. So now you're talking about 300 minutes a day of grading. Like you can't do it impossible. Hmm. So this, uh, and, and Richard, you were, you were talking to me offline a little bit about this because you went through this with me. What, what is, what is it that you're seeing about, uh, in the research about homework being less effective or something like this? I mean, the, the part that I noticed, I mean, my, my kids are out of, uh, the public school system and are into college. So they're, you know, they've all got homework, right? That's just sort of real life. The question is, is the homework given in, in the primary school system or in the public school system applicable to future life? Like, is this actually a useful utility? Plus, I think these days, especially in, I've seen this in my neighborhood, like kids are so heavily scheduled now. That's true. There's so little time for, for that, for what you really hope homework would do, which is to help extend learning. Like I would argue, hey, scrap homework, get rid of summers off. Yeah, right. You know, if you actually want to, if you're talking about learning more effectively, what I worry about with the system in general is it's got little to, not a lot to do with optimal learning strategies. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned summers. Summers are, on one hand, like so cherished by teachers, and also uh, very clearly destructive to children's learning. Uh, yeah. If you look at like low income households that most kids will regress a third of a grade level over the summer. 
So you make one, it's literally one year of progress, you know, in the typical case during the year and then move back one third. And so across two years, you're making only, uh, you know, a year and a third progress and it's damaging. It's super damaging and very hard to come back from. Well, my, my biggest complaint is that we're not teaching kids how to research and how to think. Maybe that's because we're afraid of what they're going to see when they type something into Google. So we generally steer them away from that, but which is ridiculous, right? Because, hey, you know what? The world is out there, whether you like it or not, and they're going to get exposed to it, whether it's because of you or somebody else. But uh, in, when there's a framework of uh, of how to deal with that and, and how to get the most out of it and how to learn things, how to learn how to learn, Right. This is yep. what I want my kids to know. I don't want them to be dependent on a teacher when they get out of school. Yeah, as you were saying about research, you know, one of my great hopes uh, for computer science is that we can figure out machine learning and, and natural language processing in such a way that we can differentiate academic materials. If when I was teaching computer science in high school, so I'd have 11th and 12th graders, they typically read on like a ninth grade level, eighth, ninth grade level. And computer science articles on Wikipedia were useless to them because they're yeah. basically written at doctorate level, right? And I wish we we had a machine that you could feed in the highest, uh, you know, detail text and have it spit out like, okay, here's a ninth grade reading level and a yeah. fifth grade reading level and a second grade reading level. And just one more thing, the uh, the school that my middle schooler goes to, sh they they discourage kids from going to Wikipedia because of the errors. Right. I think that's such Isn't that horrible? Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, come on, people. Like, yeah. At much the same time, don't, you know, what you do is teach them how to analyze Wikipedia. Exactly. Because everything you need is there. Just flip to the debate sections. Right. Look at the edits. Pretty quickly, you find what's contentious and what isn't. And follow the references. That's what you do when you do research. You don't just write the whole thing off. That's basically saying, nah, you don't need to know. Well, yeah. this speaks to teachers not learning what tools are available right. and sure. what they're capable of and the right ways to use right. them. I'm much more scared of the biases of an individual biology teacher in the classroom than mm -hmm. I am the biases of Wikipedia. Like, I'll take uh, Wikipedia. Dude. Well said, well said, sir. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, man. I could talk about this stuff all day. You just got us wound up now. <laughs> I fear for the next guest. Episode number two. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, it's been a gas. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. 
See you next time. Got a